Welcome guys to JPS Health and Fitness Podcast and we have a very special guest today, Dr. Quinn Henock. Welcome Quinn. Thanks, I appreciate it. Honor to be on. And Quinn is one of the most highly regarded physical therapists in the Barbell community. Uh, he's got his doctorate of physical therapy from the University of Indianapolis and he's the head of rehab for Juggernaut HQ. And in my opinion, as well as most of the lifting community, he's internationally recognized for his skills uh, in physiotherapy, as well as his ability to get athletes back in the gym lifting pain-free. So I'm very excited to have Quinn on today and help bridge the gap between uh, rehab and what we do in the gym. And I couldn't wait to get him on the podcast. So thanks very much for your time today, Quinn. Yeah, Jacob, thank you. I appreciate the intro. I'm not sure if half of that is true. I definitely am at Juggernaut HQ. All the, all the, other, all the other accolades, I'm not sure of. You know, still trying to learn in this thing, but I, I definitely appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to uh, tackling some tough questions. Awesome, awesome. And one of the first things I wanted to talk to you about today, Quinn, is what makes a good healthcare practitioner? Because there are a multitude of different methodologies disciplines, qualifications that exist in the field of rehab. So why did you choose physiotherapy instead of some of the other disciplines? And what are the qualities you believe to be critical in making a good practitioner? Yeah, you know, I, I picked physical therapy not um, because I thought necessarily that it was better than anything else. I honestly didn't, wasn't aware of other, a lot of other professions out there. I didn't really know what osteo uh, osteopathy was. I didn't know, uh, you know, I, I had experience with chiropractors, but I, what I wanted as a strength and conditioning coach was the, the bridge of knowledge for injury rehab, having, knowing now what I know about, about professions, I, I could do that. I could do the way that I, the way that I practice now, I could be any title. It doesn't, the mm. title is just that it really doesn't matter. Um, a, a physical therapist and, and a chiropractor and osteopath can do the same things. It just, they, yeah. they, their schooling may be a little bit different, you know, geared towards certain biases, but it's all within similar scopes. Now, osteop osteopaths are actually uh, considered medical doctors, at least in, in, in many circles. So they, they actually have uh, far, far more reaching scope than I do as a physical therapist. You know, I don't write prescriptions. I don't, I don't give any types of injections. I don't order imaging. I really, yeah. you know, uh, the diagnoses that we make are, are very, uh, general, you know, tendinopathy, uh, rotator cuff impingement, mm. you know, all these kind of yeah, garbage yeah. terms. It's, you know, it's, it's, we're more of just, I, I always say that myself as like a glorified strength coach, cause I really just end up finding the loading strategy that I can get this person back, you know, and, and get them conditioned again to their, yeah. to their goals, whatever that may be. But so I, I chose as a more naive person when I was, I don't know what, 21 or 22, I chose physical therapy because I thought I, I imagined that I was going to be, you know, three years in the Nike rehab center and I was going to be, you know, LeBron James's physical therapist, <laughs> you know, his student. Yeah. Um, just, that's not the case, you know, as, as a lot of us know, have gone through the programs there, you're trained to be a generalist, but I chose physical therapy for more of the movement bias as, as what I thought. Mm. Now to your, uh, second question, like what makes a good practitioner, you know, there's no, there's no book or, yeah. uh, there's no gold golden rule. And so I think I'll kind of re I'll spin the question in regards to what I do and kind of what guides me. And that's yeah. by no means saying that I'm a good practitioner, but I will explain kind of why, what I do, what I don't do. And, and you know, the reasons behind it, I think, I think the quality of, um, seeking it, you know, continuously seeking information from reputable sources is a, is a good mm. quality to have. I think those sources should be, um, for the most part, peer reviewed, you know, scientific, scientifically referenced, uh, yeah. resources. You know, I, I think, I think PubMed has been my best friend the last few years. And what I've gotten away from, from, from a self-education standpoint is, um, the, the reading of blogs. I try not to, honestly, I try to uh, sift through the internet as quickly as I can, which is funny because I've, mm. I've based most of my career on, on social media. Um, but, but the information gleaned, I, I try to make it from, from peer reviewed sources. Yeah. And I, and, and I take that and I try to drive it into practice. And I think that there's always an argument, you know, evidence-based practitioner or evidence-informed 
practitioners maybe is, is now like the mainstream term or more politically <laughs> correct or whatever. Yeah. And then the, <clears throat> the argument is always, you know, well, the clinical practice is always 10 years behind the research and all these mm. things. And, you know, we have to be progressive. But, you know, I, I'm not sure um, I'm not sure the, the logic behind an argument such as that uh, holds. It, you know, it would be like I, I choose an intervention because it worked for one person or because uh, the guru said it works, right? Mm -hmm. the, the guy who's got a lot of followers says he does this, yeah. and so I'll do it too. If we did that in the medical community, so like actual medical doctors, I, I'm a doctor of physical therapy, but it's like, you know, fake doctorate, yeah. uh, can't do anything, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like real doctors. You know, if, if somebody were to prescribe a medication, say, like, hey, Bob, take this, you know, it worked for Joe. Uh, yeah. We don't really know what it does, but it, you know, it worked for a couple guys down the street, so just take it, we'll see what happens. You know, it, it would just, yeah. it's laughable, you know, that, yeah. that would be malpractice and people uh, could die. And so yeah. I think because in the rehab community, in these allied health professions, such as physical therapy, it's not usually a life or death situation. Yeah. We can experiment with these like new gadgets and all these things. I think that it's, it becomes a little bit more complacent. Um, but you know, I, I don't think if, if we are to be taken seriously in the healthcare field and to have the perception from the public that we want, I think that we need to be a bit more stringent with the interventions that we choose. And that's uh, that's in you know evidence informed pra practice, and so I think a, a quote unquote good practitioner or a nice quality to have is using the evidence uh, to inform your practice and also yeah. to tell you maybe to tell you what not to do or to hold off on until we get a little bit more information. You know, if if uh, ten years, you know, if we were behind the research by ten years, that's that's kind of what they said about uh, kinesio tape ten years ago. You know, a colleague mm -hmm. of mine. A colleague of mine in PT school who's got a few years on me, he said that when he was in physical therapy school, they were just introducing uh, kinesiology tape and that just whole idea. And in school, they were taught that the blue tape had a cooling effect and the pink tape had a heating effect right. with obviously no evidence to back that up. And so like <laughs> – yeah. It, you know, thank goodness that we have research to just debunk that kind of nonsense. Yeah. Uh, and so it's like when you really look at it, like logically, it's actually flip flopped. We should use the evidence to, you know, if something doesn't have is not substantiated, then maybe you'll hold off on it. Just think of the medication. Yeah. Like I'm not going to prescribe you these meds until I know exactly what they do or I can at least explain to you the mechanism. Uh, and so that's that's kind of what what drives me uh, currently. I think, I think that's a, a brilliant way to practice in any profession, whether you're in the allied health or you're a strength coach, being evidence-based and having an understanding of what the science is uh, saying in terms of guiding practice and then basing that on your own experience within the client's needs. I think it's a fantastic model um, and all practitioners should look to that to some degree. And you've mentioned in the past that physical therapy is just a license and as a result, there's you know no standard operation of procedure or science as each school teaches a different bias and so forth. So you mentioned the, you know, the kinesio tape. So what are some other signs that a physical therapist isn't evidence-based and are engaging in voodoo pseudoscience practices? Yeah, so this is where, uh, you know, I, I, I anger, you know, half, half, half the world or, you know, you lose half your listeners or something like that. I think I'll, I'll again, I'll try to because when I when I talk about specific modalities, people tend anybody who then uses that modality tends to take it as a personal attack. And this is just not what I talk about. Like, who am I? You know. But yeah. when when a, when a specific modality is discussed in in kind of a skeptical manner, a questioned in a healthy manner, I mean that's what drives our, our profession forward. Then the, yeah, right. uh, sometimes the individuals who use said modality will take that as a personal attack. And so what I'm going to yeah. try to spin maybe talk about um, what I do, the things that I don't do, uh, and, maybe, and, and why, and just, you know, hopefully spin it in a way that just makes us all think and that we can discuss in a, in a healthy way. Yeah. Um, really, you know, my, my interventions are very, very simple. And when you would look at it in a cash-based uh, model the way I am, I don't, I don't mess with insurance companies. It would be like very difficult to make a living because I, I take them a minimum effective dose 
uh, perspective. Yeah. And, I, and I think yeah. that's, what, you know, I think that's what healthcare should be, right? We should only be involved if we need to be. I yes. don't want to see you in my door. Now, from a business mm. standpoint, that's very, very stupid. That's, that's um, what, what I, yeah, what I should say is that my hands, you know, these healing hands, <laughs> uh, you, need, you need these three times a week for the next six months. You know? And, and in yeah. fact, if you buy, buy a package, uh, then it'll get you a little cheaper. So let's just sign you up right now. That's what we um, But I think if, if somebody took a bird's eye view of my practice, they would say, wow, he's, he's just a coach who yeah. happens to, you know, sometimes assess things with his, with his hands. You know, he yeah. looks like he moves joints around, yeah. um, but he, but he, you know, people are just working out and that's really what I do. You know, I have a very niche population that I work with. It's, mm. I'm in a very unique situation. My clinic is attached to, like, as you mentioned earlier, Juggernaut Training Systems, which is a pretty specialized niche of a group of people. It's barbell athletes, it's weightlifters, powerlifters, crossfitters, it's the you know the American football guys that come in. It's uh, we get throwers, basketball. I mean, we you know strength and conditioning, but it's everybody is an athlete. Even the uh, get we get general public, but they're still they're still very very active. Um, I can think of I can literally think of two people in the last two and a half years who were family members of, a, of one of the athletes that we were seeing who came in my door and who's like not really into working out. We just needed to work on some stuff for daily life. And so yeah. I'm in a very niche population. And so I think that's what biases my uh, my way a little bit. But my my perspective or my uh, my go to's are education for one. Let's talk about why you are in the situation that you're in and usually that corresponds with some programming errors mm. and so it's very important that i understand programming variables and like strength and conditioning programming and, and because that's usually what the problem is it's like yeah. let's oh you tried uh, you were you know your knee started hurting three months ago and that's about the time that you started doing small off strong lifts and your <laughs> six day a week weightlifting program yeah. all in one you know what i mean yeah. it's like there's nothing i can do for you bud you you gotta, we gotta just make that modification. You overdose, like obviously. Yeah. Um, and so that's number one, you know, is, is putting things in perspective. And yeah. that's not very sexy, uh, but no. it's extremely important. The education, the setting expectations is extremely important. From mm -hmm. there, we gotta look at uh, acute versus chronic issue. And so if it's something that's been going on for a long time and there's not an active inflammatory state, um, we're probably gonna be. Um, pushing things a little bit in regards to let's find what we can train. Uh, you know, this is this is probably something that's in your head uh, more so now. You've been thinking about it. It's been a year. It's been two years. You know, or yeah. it's been several months, and you've missed a couple of meets, and you're healed. You know, uh, but there's still some of that sensitivity, both mentally and um, just kind of that chronic right. sensitization. So, but we're looking for loading strategies that we can impart right away, and it's really the same with the with an acute phase. It's let's let Mother Nature do her thing. And, you know, let's see what we can train in the meantime. Uh, and so it's very much so exercise modification and trying to find ways to get a training stimulus without exacerbating the exact issue that came in for. And that's that's essentially what I do. Um, I, I don't if you name a modality or a, um, a, an entity or like a you know school of thought, I probably don't do it. There's dry needling is not even uh, allowed in my state. So that's that's out regardless. I don't have to worry about that. Um, I don't do cupping. I, I don't I don't use the instrument assisted soft tissue. Um, I've done mm -hmm. all. I, I have experience with all of these things. Yes. Um, I do very little. I, I choose not to do a ton of manual therapy because the, the goal for me is to shift the locus of control to the athlete. I don't want to create yeah. dependency. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's and. And, and I much more so enjoy coaching people through and getting them out of there. Um, there's other yeah. practitioners that, that their niche and they enjoy the other side of it and athletes can go to them. And we have that in-house here at Juggernaut. And so it's totally fine. Um, yeah. I, the reason I don't use a lot of that stuff is because based on what we know right now um, with the literature, there's not a great way to differentiate why we would choose one modality the over the other. Mm. And it's, it almost comes down to whatever your personal bias is or whatever course yeah. you decided to go to first. If you just, if you're Joe and you just happen to go to a, a an instrument assisted soft tissue course first, that's going to be what you say works. If you liked it. it, Bob chose to go to a dry needling course. And so that's what he says works. And then Joe and Bob are arguing about which is better, but neither <laughs> one can actually differentiate the two. The yeah. mechanism of why 
of why something works is very important. And if we can, if we cannot explain or differentiate why we would use a modality over the other, go back to medication. Why am I going to pick the blue mm-hmm. pill over the red pill? Exactly. Uh, as, as it stands now, the blue pill and the red pill pill give similar outcomes, but we don't know why. We don't know the mechanisms. Yep. And I think that's maybe not dangerous to the extent of life and death, but I think it's dangerous in regards to healthcare costs and um, creating dependency you know, on, on said treatment. So I stay away from that stuff. And until there's a better explanation and not just this blanket statement of some type of neurophysiological uh, you know, a pr- um, outcome, I'm giving you a, a sensory input. You know, it's a neurophysiological realm, which I completely agree with, but that's almost a cop out. It's almost a safe place for people to, yeah. to go. Like, um, and uh, as I said, there's no way to assess and say, oh, I need to use a tool, uh, uh, you know, a metal tool for this, not a needle. But in this case, I need to use a needle and not the tool. There's yes. there's really no way to differentiate. And so I stay away as of now. Always reserve the right to change my mind and progress and hopefully have not hung myself up too much into my bro, you know, bro bias of <laughs> yeah. just get them strong. And yeah. It, yeah. If, if telling evidence to the contrary presents itself, I will certainly uh, consider it. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I guess – makes you an exception to the rule uh, in terms of most practitioners, Quinn, is you have quite an extensive lifting background yourself as well as being a you know strength and conditioning coach. Unfortunately, not all physical, physical therapists and practitioners do have you know the experience that you have in the gym. So how advantageous is it for phys- physical therapists to have that experience and then why is it important to speak the same language as athletes when you're treating them to get buy-in and you know that trust for the rehab protocols and the process to getting them back to their best? Yeah, I think the last part you hit on is just the creating buy-in, mm-hmm. creating you know setting expectations. If if uh, so, another colleague has always said you know the best thing that I can do to get the most important thing I can do to get a good outcome is to just make help the patient like me. I want the patient to like yeah. me as a person. Like I want us yeah. to be buddies. And and things are much likely to much more likely to stick. They're they're going to be much mm-hmm. more likely to adhere to the program. Um, and if because you could have the perfect intervention or the perfect program, but if they don't buy in and they don't like you, you know, as a person, then not it's not going to work. Um, sure. Or it's much more difficult. And so I think it is. It depends on the population. To your question of how important it is to be a PT who lifts mm-hmm. or a, a practitioner who lifts, um, I think it depends. If you don't, if you treat, you know, just. 70 years old and up and nobody cares about that, then it probably doesn't matter. If you're treating athletes on a daily basis, especially in in my situation where we're treating barbell athletes, and so the training is the sport. It's a very unique uh, concept. You know, Mm. uh, that population is very unique because every every day they're doing their sport. It actually makes it kind of easy because it's very uh, predictable. You know, somebody goes out on the football field. I don't know what's going to happen, but you're going to snatch a clean jerk. All right, I know those positions. Yeah, now, yeah. that's and that's controlled thing, environment. Like, having, yeah, yeah, totally. Having done that, and so I am. You know, these the athletes here at Juggernaut are incredible. Um, I have, I have as much lifting experience as most of them, but just not to the level. Uh, but I think it's one of those things. It's like they say, you know, that sometimes the best coaches made the worst athletes, or the vice versa, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably my case, but I, I have competed in the sport of weightlifting for going on seven years now um wow. and then before that it was uh, i've done a few powerlifting meets i even dabbled in competitive crossfit for a short yep. short time um i'm not a good i'm just i'm a sprinter i got no gas i got no engine yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. then i played football in american football in college and so right. i had many years of of the barbell lifts and i think mm-hmm. that it has helped from a uh, a coaching standpoint absolutely because i know the positions i feel them every day mm-hmm. you know i still train that way um, and so it's very easy for me to kind of fine tune and tweak positioning to get to change pain perception because yes. movement does can change pain in the short term. You know, if I can sure. alter a position and that decreases your pain, well, great. You know, we'll roll with that until Mother Nature does her thing. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it's very helpful now that I know the the positions and also having been having played football and, and competed in these sports, I've also been uh, subjected to many of these uh, similar ailments. And so with my experience personally, and then with um, knowledge that I've acquired in regards to you know adaptation and tissue loading and and all these things, it makes for a nice combination um, because I can I can we can make it as predictable as possible, which yes. is what we want. We want to 
you know, a systematic approach and we want to be mm -hmm. able to create timelines and, and things like that. So in my situation, it's absolutely vital. Um, and I, and I think that it is important, still important to a degree for anyone who's going to work with athletes. And yeah. it's very important for the public to know too, that physical therapy school does not teach you that. Mm. Um, we got, <laughs> I got like a half a lecture on the functional movement screen and then like, uh, a core, you know, a lecture on uh, integrated rehab or like higher level. Re it was, it was not good. Um, it's not their job. You know, they, they trained us to be generalists. I had as much training in PT school to work in a hospital that I did in an outpatient, you know, sports setting and much more yeah. so with the other one, you know, I used my coaching background before, during and after, and, you know, just self education with the literature to, and, and so if you have a, if you have a physical therapist or another practitioner who has that background knowledge, they acquire that on their own. And that's a good sign. Yes. You know, that's good. Um, and that's why we, we developed the clinical athlete network for practitioners just like that. You know, like it's we're fantastic. trying to put together, yep. yeah, trying to put together those types of, of clinicians for the public to find because they're not easy. Mm -hmm. No, it's, they're it's not. Hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if, I don't even remember your original question. I hope that. No, that was, that was perfect. That was perfect. And I guess the primary reason people come to see a practitioner is because of pain. And pain yeah. is such a, complex subjective phenomenon and defining it is so difficult can you shed some yeah. light on how pain typically arises for athletes in lifting and some of the common causes of pain yeah you know you mentioned that pain is complex and i don't pretend to be a pain expert mm. i think just preface it by um going and, and learning from guys like Lorimer Mosley, who's kind of one of the, on the forefront of, of pain. He's a researcher and he also can take it and put it into digestible format. Um, and I think that's a, that's a great place to learn. So pain is, as you mentioned, a subjective perception. It's a, if, if you're not conscious of pain, then pain does not exist. And this is, I'm going to describe it the way that we understand pain now um, and then, you know, my understanding of it based on guys much smarter than me. So pain, think of pain as an output. Your, your brain interprets a sensation or an input as pain. And then I consciously feel pain. It's a danger signal. Pain is what's we've, we've acquired is a, is a perception we've acquired to stay alive, right? It's, 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 it tells us to stop doing something or to change in some way. Now, nociception, I think is what a lot of people is the word that I think people equate to pain and they're not necessarily the same thing. And so nociception is an input. You have nociceptive nerve fibers that send signals to your brain. And so if I touch something hot or if I bang my, my leg against uh, a chair or something like that, those signals will be sent to our brain. It's up to our brain then to interpret something as conscious pain, as an output. It may not. You know, I yeah. may I may hit my leg against the table and it's just not it's not really hard enough to, to cause any dent or, you know, to be a danger signal. And so my brain just discards it. I don't even realize it. And we've mm -hmm. we've all experienced that stuff. You know, we look down and all of a sudden our leg is bleeding or something like that. It's like, what the hell happened? You know, I didn't even feel it. And yeah. So that's why, you know, nociception and pain are are sometimes poorly correlated. And it's very important then uh, to understand that because that also goes into the structural mindset. And we have this mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times. A lot of medicine was built on the structural approach, where uh, if I see something on your imaging, or if there's something wrong with your actual physical structure, then you will feel pain. And yes. what we're seeing is that it's just not. It's not that simple. And there are large percentages of high percentages of people walking around with with what would be diagnosed on imaging as bulging discs torn rotator cuffs, torn labrums in their shoulder and their hips and all the and meniscus in the knee. Uh, but, you know, symptomat asymptomatic, no symptoms. Um, yes. And then on the flip side, there are people with pristine MRIs. There's, it, doesn't, it looks great. You look like, a, you know, you got 18-year-old knees. It looks perfect. And then and they can have a debilitating pain perception. Yeah. And it's just, it's so, it's multifactorial. It's just so mm -hmm. complex. It, you know, are they are they stressed? Or they have the type of personality that yes. uh, dwells on things? You know, did they have a past experience that was uh, traumatic? And now mm. anything that even comes close to that experience is perceived as pain and danger, and and there's fear there. Yes. And it also, you know, the, any practitioner or or a professional that they've seen in the past, those interactions play a huge part. Mm. I know that if somebody walks in my door with low back pain. 
and they slap an MRI on my on my table and they say, yeah, my doctor just said that I look at all these things wrong with me. And they mm. just said, you better stop lifting or you're going to you're going to need a you know, you're going to break your back or something like that. Or you're going to yeah. need a hip replacement in five years. If you keep you know working out, just take up another hobbies. Uh, I know that I've got my work cut out for me because this now this the actual injury is far less uh, important. Now it's going to be a ton of education. It's going to be a ton yeah. of. Yeah, it's going to be a ton of uh, trying to mitigate that fear mongering that they were subjected mm. to, and and just and we call it graded exposure. And so now it's going to be my job to to f- pick activities that they can do without that threat response or without that yeah. fear, and then we yeah. we build on that. Um, yes, but you know you're right. Most people are coming in the door because they hurt, and we you know it would be easy to say oh i wish that we could everybody would come before so that we could prevent pain but like we there's prevention is just such a nebulous term like mm-hmm. we can't prevent anything and so we can certainly try to reduce risk but um you know being strong as a standalone is not doesn't equal no pain because yes. then every power no no powerlifter in the world would be ever in pain you know yeah. uh yeah. and, and flex, <laughs> flexibility certainly doesn't equate to no pain and we know this in the literature that just you know having arbitrary range of motion more than somebody else is not a protective mechanism for injury or for pain there's plenty of people in pain who do yoga you know for the last 20 years and they can do the splits three different ways and they hurt so it's it's a lot of education it's a lot of uh reassurance and of course we need to rule out those structural things that would need medical intervention Um, obviously there's red flags. If you're both, your feet are numb and you just pissed yourself, you know, we should probably get an MRI immediately, (laughs) uh, go to like, you know, (laughs) fix that cotta syndrome that you got or something like that. But you know, most things, um, people need to just, they talking people off a ledge is what we do a lot. And, uh, there, there's nothing pretty about that, but it's, that's pain science. I mean, Mm. Using, you know, somebody's got reactive tendinopathy. You know, they've got they've had uh, knee tendinopathy for five years, but it's really hot. You know, the last month it's just been uh, they haven't been able to squat or anything like that. Well, we we find you know maybe we've got to do isometrics that the the research has shown that can be an analgesic. You know, you can do you can just feel that muscle burn, and all of a sudden you don't feel pain anymore, but at least it's some type of loading. So we start there. You know, for for a generally structuralist diagnosis like tendinopathy, we we Mm -hmm. still modulate pain. Uh, strategically, yeah, and so it's very, it, it is very complex, and I and I, I think that's where the skill comes in as an evidence informed clinician is is really just figuring out the appropriate way to integrate somebody back to their goals. Um, but yeah, the pain science is just a lot of education, mm. um, a lot of meeting people where they are, and and then just trying to create context, you yeah. know, to the situation. And that's uh, shed a lot of light into yeah pain science, as I'm sure you're aware. For lifters, is something that they don't like to experience. But what is the primary difference between being injured and feeling pain? And then what should an athlete do if they're feeling pain during a movement or after a movement? Yeah. So I always preface this type of question with it. It depends on many variables and. Mm. Um, I have to speak in generalities here because my answer to, to another one situation may be completely different to another. Um, but in general, pain, you know, I don't know the difference between pain and injury. Uh, it's, it's definitely context dependent. Maybe you, maybe you just have never worked out before and you say something hurts because the, your muscles burn and you don't like that feeling or you're mm-hmm. sore. Your muscles are sore from the workout. You've never really felt that before. So you say it hurts. So sometimes we we have to make that differentiation. Are you you know, is something actually wrong? Does it hurt? Or is it, does the muscles working? And usually people will say, oh, well, the muscles working if they're, if they're that type of person for, for a more seasoned athlete, you know, maybe there is no difference. If something hurts and you're having to shy away from it, or you're having to, you know, alter your movement to get around it, or you're not hitting your volume because something hurts, then we're going to treat it the same as an injury, you know, and it, and the injury maybe we'll define at this point, at this point is, something's torn like some type of sprain inflammatory mm-hmm. a true inflammatory state like obviously your body has you're, there's damage there that now your body is reacting to and there's usually pain uh, you know conscious perception of, of threat associated with that sometimes there's not there's no inflammation there's no tear structurally you're fine but yet you still perceive this pain a lot of times that that latter scenario is maybe the f- first start 
and we call that um, you know there's some type of sensitization going on. Like let's again, let's say with with the knee, you're starting to feel some anterior knee pain that you've never felt before, but usually it correlates to something going on in your training. Like if you weren't if you weren't in this volume phase right now, your knee wouldn't be hurting. So like yeah. we know it's we know it's dose related, um, and so my answer is is usually generally the same. We're going to um, try to manipulate a variable to alter your pain. We have mm-hmm. several variables. We have volume just in general. Um, mm-hmm. It depends on what you tell me. Like you say like, I'm, you know, my workouts are usually four by eight, five by eight, eight by eight, but my knee only hurts on sets six, seven, and eight. Mm-hmm. I say, okay, well, that's a, that, that's a fitness problem. That yep. you're you're overloading, you're being sensitized once you fatigue, and so then we just have to we have to stay within your mm-hmm. your pain free volume, uh, you know, and that's and I don't we don't have to make any more changes than that because pain is just a, it's just an indication that you're overreaching in that yes. moment, yeah. And so like let's let's just not make this too complicated, you know, we'll stay within your pain free volume, and then we'll build more slowly. Uh, maybe you were just packing on the the progression a little bit too quickly. If you yeah. tell me that it hurts on set one, like it doesn't matter what I do, my knee is going to hurt. It doesn't matter what uh, now or, the, or uh, so volume, but also a, a component of volume intensity. A lot of people will say, yeah, my and again, my knee it could be shoulder, whatever. It doesn't hurt until I get up to ninety percent. Okay, well, sh- guess what we're going to do? We're going to keep your volume. We're going to back off five or ten percent mm-hmm. and and get your volume in your pain free range and then progress a little bit more slowly. So we'll yeah. in, instead of this block, we'll spread out the block. You'll do exactly the progression that you were going to do. We'll just spread it out, um, yeah. and and then hopefully your fitness will catch up and you'll be fine. Um, now, what if they tell me that it doesn't matter about the percentage, it doesn't matter about the volume, it's going to hurt regardless it hurts if I just move my arm? Well, obviously, then now we have to make uh, maybe even a movement modification. Right. So if uh, you know if, if my knee hurts during during front squats but not back squats, or if it feels better during safety bar squats, or uh, if I have to cut my depth, if I can't bottom out my squat, but if I cut my depth off, you know maybe an inch or two above where it hurts, then that's where we train. Um, if we need to manipulate t- uh, tibial angle to get mm-hmm. pain-free range of motion, tempo is a huge one. Yeah, all, all of the all of the tendinopathy literature right now, or it seems to be this way, is pointing towards what they're terming uh, heavy slow resistance training, which is not even uh, you know we t- we think tendinopathy oh eccentrics you know if you have a tendon issue eccentric well now it's we're seeing that it's either direction concentric or eccentric just mm-hmm. move slow and get time under tension. Yeah, and what's what's sl- what slowing the tempo down does? It's beneficial not only for uh, tendon or tissue loading, but also it forces you to use lighter loads. Mm-hmm. And so you're it's almost protective. You're, it's you're almost taking like care a of the other two variables. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you're mm-hmm. still getting good work in. Yeah, because so, I say like yeah, yeah, we can do, we can reduce the intensity, but now like maybe you don't get a training effect, which kind of sucks, right? But yeah. if we reduce the intensity and increase the tempo or decrease the tempo i'm sorry make it make it slower um so there's more time with each rep then now you're bringing another variable up and you're getting more of a training effect and so and then you know again after that it's about uh manipulating probably the the actual exercise and maybe we have to get away from a two-legged bilateral squat maybe you have to go to a split squat split squat holds yeah uh yeah. maybe you can't maybe knee flexion is just not your jam right now. We have to just go RDLs and pulls and, and mm. glute bridges. And then our quad stuff is super basic, like terminal knee extensions and, you know, but it's always loading. I mean, mm. it's, 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 and it's not about getting strong, like strong. Again, I said it earlier, strength is not a protective factor yes. you, or else we would never get hurt. We're, and then like, mm. what's, what's strong enough, you know, it's, it's mm. not intense, but what does make sense is taking out, not recreating the exact pain, but then reintroducing variations that are similar in nature to the exact to the goal activity. Um, and that's really all. I mean, that's re and that's rehab. I mean, that's really all it is. And so, if an athlete is to your back to your question, if an athlete is feeling pain, you know, then my recommendation is see if you can change it by any one of those variables. That's uh, um, some com- fantastic yeah. practical advice. It's yeah, it's, re- it's, a- it's something that's not uh, simplified for lifters enough, I don't think, Quinn. 
Yeah, you know, I think at, at some point, it's, a lot of what I said, is, it seems like it's common sense, like, oh, just don't use as much weight or don't do as much volume. But I think the art of making modifications, but only so many, only the modifications that you need and not going all the way back to square one is, is important. Because what we're seeing now in the literature is also uh, deconditioning is, is yes. not good. And so what I mean by deconditioning is, oh, I hurt my, you know, I hurt my knee or hurt my shoulder and I'm just not going to do anything. You know, I, I took, I took a month completely off and maybe in a, in a true acute stage, that's going to give your body time to heal, of course. But you have, what you're also doing is you're losing your fitness. The tissue is losing its fitness. Everything is being, is being deconditioned. And, and then what do people do? As soon as they're not in pain anymore, they feel like they're fixed and then they jump <laughs> right back into the program that they were doing. Yeah. But now they're in a deconditioned state and they get hurt again and they wonder why. And then that's when people jump to surgery. They said, oh, I took a month off yeah. uh, and, I, and I went back and now it happened again. So shit, I don't know what I'm going to do. And it's, it's, it's just like, no, 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 dude. Like you skipped a lot in there. You know, there was this whole like <laughs> rehab thing. Yeah, uh, that that you didn't do, and so that's what we're seeing now is like let's create, let, let's protect the injury, um, respect your pain perception because if you tell me you feel pain, then you feel pain. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not going to argue with your with your perception, but we are going to see what we can train in the meantime because Mother Nature should take care of things if we're not being an idiot. Now, if it's more chronic in nature, you know, now we're dealing with some centralized mechanisms there. It's not. It's not just structure. If it, if if it was structure before, now it's definitely not uh, just structure. As far as like chronic, you know, months on end, years feeling the same type of pain. Those things are much more slow to progress. But the the guidelines are exactly the same. It's the success and the outcomes just take a lot longer, and it's, there's more peaks and valleys. Awesome. And something that I guess is hard to identify for athletes um, without, you know, x-rays and other things like this is whether or not they have a structural abnormality that is simply something they cannot change versus a functional uh, issue. Now, can you explain the difference between a structural issue versus a functional issue and how do athletes go about identifying whether a movement limitation is structural or function? Uh, there's really no way to, no good way to explain that over, over, over a podcast. I, I mean, mm -hmm. those types of things definitely require some type of an assessment, but mm -hmm. you've got to ask yourself, like it, we get a lot in the, in the sport of weightlifting, which is a snatch and clean and jerk. We get a lot of people that will say, you know, my shoulder, or I feel like my shoulders are tight, meaning in the, like I say in a snatch, meaning they feel like they can't get their shoulders all the way over their head to get that bar back, you know, behind their ears where they want it for their overhead squat. And then so I always ask the question, okay, your shoulders feel tight during the full snatch, meaning you catch it in a full squat. But how is how is the power snatch? How do your shoulders feel during an overhead press? You're just like, oh well, a power snatch, my shoulders feel fine, but it's the full snatch that all of a sudden they get tight. And so yeah. the you've got to think about it logically. If you have if you have the shoulder structure for a power snatch. The shoulders are not the issue. You know, it's like they people blame the elbows too. They say my elbows don't lock out when I do an overhead press. But if I do a snatch, or if I do a snatch, they lock out great. If I do an overhead press, they they bend, and so it must be an elbow problem. If you've got the elbows for a snatch, you've got them for an overhead yeah. press. And so you, yeah. you've got to think. Try to get the joints in the positions that you deem, and you you will have to probably change the the actual exercise. But if the joints get into the positions during one variation. You've got the same joints mm -hmm. for yeah. the more complex variation. What what is likely a, a factor is maybe there's another joint structure that's a limitation. But what's more likely is that there's some type of motor skill acquisition deficiency that you have not yes. addressed. Like so I, I mentioned, the snatch is a very it's a very complex movement pattern, mm -hmm. and just because you can't receive the bar where you want it doesn't mean that something's tight. It probably means you haven't practiced the snatch enough. Maybe you yep. need to do more snatch balances. Or like another example is like, well, I, I, my overhead squat depth is good, but my snatch depth, my hips get tight. My hips are too tight to snatch. But, but if, they can, if they get down there during the overhead squat, then it's not your hips. It's mm -hmm. something that's happening during the skillful movement of the snatch where yes. you're, you're disconnecting, you're putting the brakes on. So, so for the hips, for example, can you – if you have a variation – um, that you have better mobility than another, then it, the joints go there. So like if you can goblet squat your face off, yes. but then when you go real super heavy, a super heavy back squat, 
all of a sudden you feel like your hips lock up. Well, you're probably not strong enough and you're, you're locking yourself down into a different position. Yeah. Um, like, and then again, if, if a light, let's say light back squat, 30, 40, 60, 70%, you're hitting all your positions and then 80, 90 plus you feel like your hips get tightened. You have the same hips for 70% that you do for 80%. Mm -hmm. Uh, there, there's must be some type of positional change because the weight is heavier and you haven't trained yourself to yep. hold the same position, tempo, motor skill. So as a general rule of thumb, um, try to change the variation to get your joint into that position. If your shoulders feel tight with a, a barbell strict press, grab a dumbbell or a kettlebell and, and drive a single arm press and do that mm -hmm. on both sides in between your heavier barbell sets. Like actually load the variation and the yep. position that you're trying to get into, but just use a regressed strategy. Uh, and, and that's generally my recommendation. I think in my experience, actual true structural blocks, structural mm -hmm. abnormalities that don't let your joint go where you want them to go is so much more rare than mm. people want to assume. <laughs> they want – it's almost like a cop-out because getting strong in certain positions and, and working very tediously and meticulously to get a certain range of motion takes a lot of work and it's, sure. and it's boring. Um, and, and so – just saying that your joint is tight and then doing a bunch of uh, passive stretching is just a lot easier to implement. It's not as much effort, but it doesn't do as much. Um, and so if, if usually when, in my experience, if somebody has a true structural block, they, they know it. Like it's, it's something that happened to them or they were born with it uh, or they had a surgery or they had a, uh, a fall or an accident. Like it's obvious. Yes. It's not this like, no, I haven't really had any injuries, but I just have like scar tissue built up. You know, they just make up these narratives because <laughs> they because it's been three months and they can't they still can't hit their positions. Um, when in, in reality, it's probably just not enough skill acquisition. So, as I mentioned, general recommendation: try to find a variation that's regressed slightly, but that allows you to get into the position more comfortably, and then hammer that uh, very frequently and in in close proximity to the higher level exercise that you're trying to improve upon. And that's that's a nice way to go about it. Yeah, and I think that's something that's often forgotten. Uh, I wouldn't say as much in the Olympic lifting community as is the strength uh, community, but lifting weights is a skill and hitting positions is a skill and very much comes down to um, your movement quality and how you hold positions at various uh, points uh, within a specific exercise. And something that uh, I'm sure you'll agree with that really limits people's ability to hold position is their breathing patterns. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, if we, we can equate, um, the relevance of breathing or just stabilizing the trunk, mm. you know, cause everybody, we're, we're all breathing enough. If you're listening or if you will listen to this, you know, you, you've done well enough this far to stay alive with, with your breathing. But I think being able to control, um, your, your torso, you know, it's like with a, again, I'll go back to the example of a goblet squat, a counterbalance squat. You know, for a lot of athletes, it's like magic for them to find their squat depth. They look like, you know, a baby giraffe with a barbell on their back, but you put a kettlebell in their hands and have them, then they just drop it like it's hot. It looks beautiful, right? And so it's, it's like, well, your joints tool. go there. Yeah, it is. It's a nice teaching tool, mm. uh, but it gives you a, the, you know, the reason something like, like that is so useful is that front loaded position almost cues you to organize your, down. your torso automatically. Yeah. And that's why um, a front squat, you know, barring any limitations to the front rack, a front squat can be that way too because that front load forces your core to engage. Mm -hmm. uh, and if, you know, if we fail a front squat, it's not a leg strength issue generally. It's because your, your torso position gave out um, and then you had to push, right? And so we can we, – I definitely cue uh, manipulating the tension with, with the breath, you know, a, a forceful exhalation driving air down into that brace and creating this 360 degrees of expansion as a way to help with that. Ideally, the athlete can, can reflexively just brace, you know, and control their position. Because uh, with a – go back to like a snatch or clean and jerk, the movement's so fast, you're not thinking about that. Or a rugby player, a soccer player, a football player, if they're on the field, they've got no time to think about their breathing. Their body just has to react. But yeah. in a controlled setting like a gym uh, – you know, it can be nice to practice that stuff with some slower, more regressed positions and you're, you're practicing maintaining tension and being able to 
you know, create some force with a with an exhalation and, a, and an inhalation. And you know, even if you're not wearing a weightlifting belt, pretend that you're pushing against the belt in all directions. Certainly, a nice uh, you know, a nice tool mm. to have, a nice a nice skill for sure. And I think that's something that most people uh, in the current uh, trend have forgotten is the importance of stability. We we get so caught up on mobility and mobbing joints that we often forget how important stability is. But something else I wanted to pick your brain about, Quinn, was the tightness versus stiffness uh, debate. And obviously this is very much semantics, but how do you differentiate between the two? And do you approach treating tightness differently to treating stiffness? Yeah, not really. And I, you know, I don't even, I've made a video about this before, but um, I don't even necessarily make the differentiation. It, it, my my thing is always: can the joints get into the positions that I want to load them? Period. Um, now, let's say it's the shoulder, and the goal is to to press overhead, and I lay them on their back. I want to make sure their their joints go there. It would be nice if your shoulder actually went there, if your joint actually rolled in that position, and you know could could show me the potential. And that's kind of how I define mobility: is just the potential of your joint systems to achieve a position. And so. If I lay you on your back and your and your shoulder just flops over your head, both sides, I know your joints go there. There's no restriction. Yeah. Whether or not you can put them there under load, fatigue, you know, against gravity is a different story. Um, but in general, what we had defined just tightness as is a perception. Like people say they you know they feel tight, but the same people that say their shoulders feel tight could be the same people that lay on the table and they, their shoulders flop to the, you know, there's no structural length yeah. uh, discrepancy there. And maybe that's where um, some, where the word stiffness comes in or, or just some type of structural length extensibility deficiency. But if, if it is the case where the joint seems to lack the range of motion to get into the positions that we, that we want to load, um, we will try to load that that new position, try to gain range of motion, will do so uh, hopefully in an active state because the, the literature has shown that if we can load eccentrically, if we can add resistance to a to a position at end range, we'll get more uh, response. We'll get a range of motion response, and, and hopefully we get the benefits of mechanotransduction um, where we actually create a little bit of control. So for the shoulders, one example would be like a pullover exercise. So if I'm holding a PVC pipe with a plate, roll on the middle yeah. and I go I'm on my back and I just let the weight you know sink me down but I'm still having to control the position mm-hmm. um, that you know that would be an example of an eccentrically loaded mobility drill for somebody who's a little short it's a range of motion and then hopefully that would correlate to we would probably then couple that with some type of intermediate maybe a, a single arm press or something like that but then with the other side of the spectrum the, the person who's got the mobility the, the joints obviously go there then I'm probably not spending a whole lot of time with the low-level stuff, and I'm probably trying to find the most difficult variation that they can perform because I know they've got the range. Yeah. And so right. the whole—I don't care what they feel, honestly. If if they're telling me they feel tight, like I'll, I'm, I'm saying, look, your joint moves just fine. It's the same with the objective hips. versus subjective. Yeah. Well, it's just like you know, for a squat, you can lay somebody on the table, and, and they say always say they feel their hips are tight during their squat, but you know, I move their hips around and there's just, there's no resistance. You know, that happens all the time. Um, and, and so we've got a, the problem is the variation of squat that they're trying to acquire the skills must be, uh, too complex for them. And so we start like that's somebody like that is a perfect candidate to start uh, counterbalance squatting with some tempo where I'll force them to, to pause or to go very, very slow and pause in certain positions to create active control. And then we'll work on being able to let go of the kettlebell and hold that position on their own. Uh, but so I guess that's a differentiation I make is, is, you know, do the joints get into the positions? And if they do, but you feel tightness, well, you know, then we got to figure out the, we got to get you, you know, more stable in that position. We got to get you more acclimated and trained and you probably won't feel that tightness anymore. If it is truly a structural block, which we determined, uh, you know, through moving joints around or, or whatever, or no matter what squat variation, your joint wasn't going there, like even a, a front foot elevated split squat, you know, we, we've got to load it somehow. Yeah. Uh, so the front foot elevated split squat is actually a, an example of, of a squat mobility exercise that we do very, very slowly. So the, 
you're in that split stance and the front foot is up maybe four to six inches. And I don't know what that is in centimeters, uh, eight, <laughs> something like that. And then, uh, and then so you, and then you go very slow. Yeah. <clears throat> and then you go very, very slow into that range of motion and your front foot is elevated. So that your front hip is in deeper hip flexion. It's a nice drill to acclimate somebody to, uh, to a deeper hip flexion position, but it's only on one side. And so they can control, uh, some variables a little bit better. They can control their trunk a little bit better in that, in that split stance position. It's generally more comfortable, um, mm. than a, a bilateral squat when we're trying to reacclimate somebody to that deep squat position. So that's, that's an example. It, it doesn't change whether it's structural or their joints don't actually go there or they actually do. It doesn't change a ton. It maybe just changes our starting point. Right. Um, right. But even then, it's, it's more of just a conversation that it changes. Well, probably very much the, the prescription will be very similar. It's still always the guideline of, well, let's just find the variation that you're comfortable, you know, training in. Let's, let's see where you can move, what variation it is. But the conversation of, you know, the education of do your joints actually go there or not is probably the differentiation. Yeah. And something I wanted to discuss with you today, you've done a great video on, uh, the myths of foam rollers and, uh, using these tools too excessively to help us prepare for training. How yeah. important uh, is mobility and activation drills for physical preparation in the big lifts? And do people spend far too much time doing these kind of things as opposed to practicing the skill of the movements that they're going to be then performing in their training, in your opinion? Are you are you defining mobility as foam as foam rolling? Foam like rolling mobility work as foam. Yeah, rolling? yeah, yeah. SMR and all of those other techniques. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Yeah, yeah. I'm waiting for the day, and you're right. I mean, that's the way it's only defined in, in mainstream. I'm waiting for the day where mobility work is defined as just doing the exercise more yeah. with lighter weights. Or like with, you know, a little slower, yeah. like I'm um, doing my squat mobility work just means that I'm taking the empty bar or I'm taking yeah. 60 kilos and I'm doing some pause squats and like, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But yeah, in general, a lot of people do spend uh, a little bit too much time. I, I think it just depends on the context. The, the, the foam roller is interesting. What we, what we know now is not a whole lot, uh, but what we think we know is that the, what the roller doesn't do, and it doesn't seem to be plausible that the foam roller can rip break up your collagen tissues mm -hmm. and then you mentioned i made a video on this and i'm sure it's it'll be uh just you know LinkedIn, be the dead yeah. horse for anybody yeah uh but but there's there's been some studies that show that to to create actual shear force in collagen fibers of, of deep fascial structures that we generally roll thousands of pounds of pressure is needed to do so and so it would be illogical to think that a foam roller could for, for one, provide that amount of force, and number two, do that without breaking the skin. Yeah. Like how how in the world <laughs> could you create two thousand pounds of force yeah. and not break the skin? Not just like rip apart your flesh. And then the other <laughs> question would be like, is that even if we could do that, even if we could, would we even want that? Like, mm. why would I want my my deep fascial layers to be ripped apart? It, does, it just doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. Um, and then if you on you know, the other side, if you think about it, it's not the other side, same side. If you think about it from a training perspective, if we were that malleable, if we were made of clay like that, mm. the back squat would just – it would annihilate us. Like the bar would just sink into our upper trap yep. uh, and just you know crush us. We would be obliterated with the bar if we were, if we were that fragile. So thank goodness that it's not that way. Um, <laughs> and so what we – we don't know, but we do know that there's evidence that the foam roller can increase range of motion in the short term. It can decrease pain perception. Uh, it can, and, and pain threshold. So your tolerance to, like, they, it can do like a pinprick or poke you and it would be painful. And if you foam roll, then it's not as painful anymore. What's, yeah. Well, what's interesting is that lots of stuff can create that short-term change. I mean, mm. just jumping on the exercise bike. Um, doing more of a getting actually warm, you know, yeah. drinking a, a, a cup of coffee right before you train. I mean, seriously, like there are so many things that can just mm -hmm. give you a short term pain perception. There's nothing special about the phone. Um, if that is your choice, if that is your modality of choice to give you that short term change, that's fine. I much prefer 
if I know that a dynamic warm-up, which I do because the literature says that a, dy- a dynamic warm-up can give you the same range of motion improvements as a foam roller, then I'm going to pick that because I can get my skill acquisition there. Like I can do the empty bar. I can do. I can practice just snatches. I can practice my squat tempo and groove. I can pa- practice my bench press groove yep. over and over. Like instead of instead of rolling on the roller for 20 minutes, why don't you just take more warm-up sets mm. of your skill? Why don't you do more med ball throws or something like, or like um, some more sprint drills to get warm? Just do more of them, and you'll get yeah. the same adaptation. But now you've acquired skill. Um, but you know, having said that, it, uh, people do like the foam roller, and so I, I acknowledge that. And so I say, if you're going to use it, use it in short, minimum effective dose bouts. Short bouts, minimum effective dose. So if 10 seconds gives you that pain you know, decrease pain perception, then 10 seconds it is, go into a movement. And that I like, instead of having all of your front, your uh, foam rolling front loaded, mm-hmm. like 20 minutes in the very beginning, yep. intersperse it in between your right. workout sets. Because yep. um, it's not, it's, it doesn't decrease your power output, or at least literature shows that now. It's, and so that's not necessarily a concern. There's, there's been some talks of like, oh, the, the foam roller shifting you into a parasympathetic state. I mean, no, <laughs> only if, if you're laying on the roller and you're just like breathing really heavily and meditating for five minutes, then yes, you're probably going to shift into a more parasympathetic state. You're going to calm down and probably yeah. not want to train. But if it's 10 <laughs> seconds of just yeah. rolling glued out in between your squats, Vigorous, yeah. you're, you're okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're just, yeah, you're just doing it to numb essentially. Like if I, if I bang my knee against the table and I rub it, it's the same exact mechanism. It's just an input. It's it's a it's an input to override another input. So like I feel I perceive tightness as like the output of my perception, and then I just use another thing that kind of like is actually uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and it overrides the pain stimulus. Also, uh, I think they call that diffuse diffuse noxious inhibitory control. So you use a noxious stimulus to override another noxious stimulus. It's interesting. It's very um, interesting. And it's amazing yeah. how we've all evolved over the years. You know, I've seen so many people go from spending, you know, countless hours on a foam roller every day to now not even using it because they heard one piece of, you know, literature say that it's, you know, not as effective as what we once thought. And, you know, I, I often think, as you alluded to, the answer lies in the middle. Yeah, I mean, don't, and we all make that mistake, you know, we go crazy, uh, we just, it's this whole, like, and we just listen to people blindly, mm. you know, I, I think it's it's definitely something that's, because I was the guy who was warming up for like an hour and a half, even before he was touching the bar, I was hooking a band up to every joint in my body, I was foam rolling everything, <laughs> like, this was, and this was not that long ago, like, mm. you know, four or five years ago, I was singing a completely different yeah. tune, maybe like six yeah. years ago. Uh, but it was it was the opposite. I mean, it was literally the polar opposite. Uh, but I learned very quickly because that's generally what science does is it like, oh, this isn't working. Like, why? And then you learn the mechanisms and now it makes perfect sense. You're doing things that are actually going to elicit a, a response. Otherwise, it's also low level. It's just not going to change anything. That's why these that's why you, if a formal was permanent, you wouldn't have to do it all the time. It would just it would have broke up your tissue and that would be that. Uh, but it's, it's got a, it's this, this kind of perceptual thing that I I don't want to hang my hat on that. I want to hang my hat on things that actually change my physiology mm-hmm. and give me fitness. And if something like a foam roller can be interspersed in there is just you know something to give me like a the point two five percent, which is probably a lot more mental than it is anything else. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I, I think For people sure. spin it they, they they spin it the opposite way. The other way. Um, yeah, but it's like you said, you know, somewhere there, there's you, something's happening. Mm. But, uh, you know, they've shown that. It's just that, as I mentioned, there's a lot of things that do the same thing. And so it's it's your choice what you choose. Yeah. yeah, awesome. And my final question for you today, Quinn, is you spoke about how if we stop training completely, we become, we become deconditioned and we lose our fitness. So... My question to you is, in the rehab phases, what are some recommendations you have for athletes to make sure that they can uphold their fitness while improving 
the limitation, whether it's an injury, whether it's just pain or mobility or whatever it may be, uh, to build back their fitness. And then the second part to that question is, do people need to do rehab and prehab all the time? Well, so uh, I'll address the first one with a disclaimer that, again, it must, must be a general statement because if you're, if you're currently injured, I have no idea what you should do to rehab. So you should probably go see somebody for that, uh, preferably somebody on the clinical athlete directory. And so there's a little plug there. Shaky but plug. In, it, no, it's, if, I think the answer to that, that first question is what they should do to increase their or to maintain their fitness or what to know what to do. I think we've covered it in some capacity is figure out just because you can't do the main movement that you want to do or at the intensity and volume that you want to do it doesn't mean that you can't do a lot of other stuff. So find a next the next tier down. You you can't you know if it's not the barbell the straight barbell is it the safety bar squat is it a is it a kettlebell is it a dumbbell is it a split squat uh, two two kettlebell front squat if it's not you know and again I don't want to play internet doctor here but if it's not recreating your exact symptoms or your or you know there's observable changes in inflammation like it's your joint is swelling you know you're not getting those responses during after that evening or the next day it feels like you didn't do it it feels like you didn't do anything like that's a good sign mm -hmm. but at least you did something you would have felt that way and maybe even felt stiff from not doing anything and you and you would have got no training uh, training stimulus so pick you know whether it's i don't care if it's you know front planks is all you can do Yep. Put a put a freaking you know put a twenty kilo twenty five kilo plate on your back and hammer some hard high threshold front planks. Do something. Yeah. Get on. Get some cardio in. Get you know at least get that get that going. Um, and a lot of people you know at least in my realm don't do any of that. Mm. You know jumping on the bike for ten minutes and like getting your heart rate up is like whoa what? I know I don't even run in my car if it's raining. But <laughs> if you're hurt yeah. and there's nothing else you can do. Um, just do something, get, do something, do something. Yeah. uh, you've got to educate yourself now. Like always the rebuttal of that question is, well, what, what is the something? How do I know? Well, you know, that's what you just got to educate yourself on, you know, ask a coach. That's what they're, you know, that's what they get paid for. Like, what can I do instead? Um, and I, and again, your rule of thumb, and this is a, this is a, a sketchy one. So make sure you get an evaluation, but if it's not recreating your exact symptoms during, after, or, you know, the next day, that's a good sign. Yes. And at least you did something. Mm -hmm. Um, and then what, well, and then your second question was re remind me. Do people always need to do, uh, mobility work and prehab and rehab oh. drills for the rest of their training career? Because you see a lot of people do it and then they don't necessarily have any issues. Right. It's a good question. And I, and the answer, the short answer is no, they don't have to do that. Well, let's define terms. Rehab, um, would assume that you are, are having to build back up. Yeah. You're rehabilitating because there was something that, that brought you down. Now you have to rehab. But if like, we know if you're, do, if you rehab, if you're progressing, you know, and we're dosing it appropriately at some point you're back. Right. Yes. And then you don't have Correct. to rehab anymore. And then you see people uh, so rehab, continually doing their, you know, uh, rotating after yeah. for, forever, and it's like, well, dude, you should you should be fixed by now. There, a lot of that's it's like, is it bad? No, is it taking the time mm. away from things that will that will increase their fitness? Probably, the you know it, everything has a place. It's like the rehab or the the theraband you know rotator cuff exercise is probably great. Uh, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks post op, mm. you know you had that was all you could do. You had to do that, but like. A year after, you're not. It's just a mental. Like it's not doing anything. Go, yeah. go, move heavier weights. Hmm. Um, it's the same. You know, we we use that stuff as like warm ups. You get that muscle. You get the muscle to burn. Um, maybe you're feeling a bit beat up and you're sore. So we'll throw in some of that lower level, like uh, kind of isolation stuff. Just yeah, yeah blood flow and also the muscle burn is like analgesic. Uh, you just feel better. That's the same with like clamshell, glue, you know, glue bridges, all these super low level exercises. But to your point, I think people put too much stock in them as they, you know, if they are going to maintain my fitness or they are going to protect me from injury and they're usually just not enough stimulus. Mm -hmm. If we use them, it's number one, that's all we can do at the moment because we're still rehabilitating. 
you're in a stage where you're just so jacked up, we can't do anything else but a glute bridge or a clamshell. Yeah. That's fine. That's where we are. The goal is to move away from that stuff as soon as possible. Um, and then we reintroduce it maybe to teach a pattern, like to give you uh, – so I want to work on my deadlift lockout or like let's do some really like focused glute bridges between your warm-up sets of your rack pull because we're yeah. practicing a motor skill. But right. it's but that's different than what you're yeah like the question that you're asking is like uh, injury prevention that's that's not probably not the case probably not yeah. the deadlifts are what are reducing your risk most likely you know being strong and resilient and, um, and fit that's that's your injury reduction uh, program right there and then I, the prehab is an interesting word I think that's a buzzword that's a bit misused as well pre sure. prehab in the rehab in, in our field is a specific thing. It's the exercises and the training that you do before a surgery. It's your prehabilitation. Rehab is after the surgery or, or whatever. But like let's say somebody tears their ACL and their surgery is not for another couple months. We're, we're going to do as much as we can and that's our prehab. We're going to squat, lunge in some capacity. Yeah. We're going to train the glutes and the hamstrings and the quads as much as we can. That's prehab. That's true prehab and it's actual the way it's actually intended to, to be used in that term. Um, but to your point, everybody kind of like corrective exercise, you know, wise T's eyes, clamshells, crossover symmetry, uh, name, you know, lists of all of these rotator cuff stuff that's prehab now. And I think the pre has this assumption that it's preventative. Yes. And that's, and that's just not, it's just not the case. The fitness, well, higher fitness qualities Strength, power, speed, stamina, cardiovascular, uh, you know, just, just capacity. Those qualities are what seem to reduce your relative risk for injury. And those low-level exercises are just not eliciting stimulus yeah. for that. It's just not. They're, they're great to get moving and they're great to sometimes teach a position and it's like a starting point. But yeah, I, I think it's a similar conversation with foam rolling where – Instead of putting in the hard work and the stuff that like is mentally and physically taxing that you actually have to recover from, we try to fill it with a bunch of the easy stuff that's yeah. like a little bit hard if you do a ton of it, but not really. Uh, yeah. And then yeah. we hope that that does something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, that was a very yeah. informative uh, discussion, Quinn, and I can't thank you enough for joining us today and sharing your knowledge and experience in the uh, world of rehab and physical therapy. Thank you very much for your time, and we'll speak to you next time. All right. Well, I appreciate it, Jacob. Uh, hopefully, I didn't. We don't have like uh, picket fencers outside of my outside of my <laughs> office ready to hang me up. But I, it was great. Uh, thanks for asking those all the all the good questions, and uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I appreciate it. Thank you, Quinn.